Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Today's podcast is presented by EPRA, the European Public Real Estate Association. Facing global megatrends like green transition and aging population, how will listed real estate contribute to a sustainable future and financial security for Europe? Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. Or is this actually the EU version of Alice in Wonderland? After a second very long and confusing EU Leaders Summit this week, I can hardly tell anymore. Anyway, I'm your host Ryan Heath, the political editor of Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. I don't think anyone was expecting Ursula von der Leyen to be the nominee for European Commission President. I had predicted Belgium's Charles Michel for European Council President and also Christine Lagarde at the European Central Bank. Many people also knew Joseph Borrell of Spain wanted to be chief diplomat and that he had a good shot at the job. But von der Leyen wasn't Merkel's first or second choice. She wasn't even the first German EPP candidate. That said, she's a very impressive person. I've heard her jump between three languages in a passionate EU speech before, and she manages to do it in a way that's neither trite nor condescending. She doesn't suffer fools gladly, and she's obviously an efficient manager. How else do you qualify as a doctor, raise seven kids, and survive as a government minister for 14 consecutive years? Nevertheless, von der Leyen is in the fight of her political life over the next couple of weeks. I'm in Strasbourg, France right now, where the new European Parliament has convened for the first time, and I can tell you there's plenty of scepticism about her nomination from across at least several parties. That means many MEPs are at risk of refusing to vote for the package of top job candidates that von der Leyen is a part of. And if they are to vote for her, they intend to extract a price, either policy concessions or political appointments. So watch this space. In this week's episode, our feature interview is with Mark McGann. He's a 25-year veteran of the EU's tech and telecom scenes. He's seen more than a few giant companies and giant political egos rise and fall in that time. And I talked to him about what the EU needs to do to thrive and how he ended up with 24-7 bodyguards during his time at Uber, one of the companies that rose highest and crashed hardest. Today, Mark is running Moonshot Ventures, a service that tries to advise young companies on how to cope with regulation and regulators. Later on in the podcast panel, we debate the EU top jobs fight and whether anyone should know or care about Angela Merkel's and Jeremy Corbyn's health. But first up, Mark McGann. Mark McGann is one of the digital Illuminati of the EU of Brussels. I almost don't even know how to begin describing your CV, Mark, but firstly, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ryan. What you're doing at the moment is you run Moonshot Ventures, so you're advising tech companies and venture capital firms on how to basically deal with this big public policy world and the regulatory storm that is going to be coming at all of these people. Before we sort of dive into the ups and downs of everything you've been doing over the last 20 years, 
How is that working? Why did you feel the need to move into this type of work after this big long backstory in Brussels? Yeah, I, I'm not sure if it's Illuminati or Lunilati. I've been doing whatever I do for the past 25 years. My first meeting in the European Commission was in 1993. I guess I haven't really stopped since. And whereas early in my career, I was always trying to be at the, you know center stage and be the front man. And I was very lucky to be the front guy for the European tech industry when the biggest market capitalizations in the world were Ericsson, Nokia, Siemens, Alcatel. You know, global tech was European tech and vice versa. And that was when you were running Digital That's Europe, when I was the running, big lobbying association. Digital Europe sort of built that up to the powerhouse that's become. As I get older, I guess I'm now trying to figure out, you know, how I can advise some of the younger generation, which makes me sound like a grandfather, but all the new European startups that are trying to figure out how to enter the market, how to scale the European market, it can be very, very daunting. And while big tech firms certainly have the resources to understand Brussels, to understand the bubble, understand the institutions and engage, it's pretty daunting and very, very complex for the smaller technology firms in particular that have to play by the rules or need the rules to be changed if their business model is to be successful. So being the sort of the low profile behind the scenes senior guy is quite enjoyable. And we're going to see more and more of that when it comes to things like artificial intelligence, aren't we? Like to do the machine learning, you basically just to have, have to have tons of data and it's very hard to catch up if you are the new little guy. Is one of the struggles that those companies are going to face basically that it just becomes so much easier to be bought out by one of the big ones and we're just going to be consolidating more and more and more in this whole sector? Well, I mean, a lot of people in Europe and at the political level in particular are concerned and I think disappointed that Europe doesn't appear to have been able to build as many so-called unicorns, technology companies which, at least on paper, are worth potentially worth 1 billion uh, euros or more. There's a lot more of them out there. I saw that your colleague was writing about Omeo, which is a Berlin-based startup which has been going for a couple of years. You know, that's become a, a massive company, a massive app for, for getting from A to B. But some of the smaller companies are getting bought out, and there's a natural phase in your cycle when that makes economic sense for the founders. But fortunately, a lot of them are just trying to stay independent, whether it's in transport, like the e-scooter companies, whether it's in travel, I mentioned Omeo, and many others. So you don't have to go all the way back to Skype or to Spotify to try and remember that Europe does still have the potential to build champions. You've got a great organization here called the EU Tech Alliance that does help the smaller firms to engage with policymakers. But everyone says, and it's true, that regulation can never keep step with the pace of innovation and the pace of technological innovation in particular, but it's important to understand what's the regulatory framework today, if you have an idea, if you have a business model, and how do you influence to get that changed or get that adapted, whether it's you know autonomous vehicles and teleoperated vehicles or some of these new inventions. That brings us right to Uber, which is how we first got to know each other. Sure. Maybe you didn't want to talk about this one, but you were on the global management team at Uber through that whole period where it went from kind of zero to hero and then had a big plummet in its reputation, even as it was growing to be this global giant. So full disclosure, I used to work for Nelly Cruz when she was a European commissioner, and I wrote a blog post when Uber was banned in Brussels, and I did it on behalf of Nelly. She was outraged that this had happened, and she said, free reign, go to town, slam the Brussels government for what's happened here. Uber has the right to operate, how dare they be subject to 10,000 euro fines for every ride that they collect and so on. And you were the Uber guy at that time, but I never asked you, like, where were you when you read that blog post? And what did you think? Like, talk us through a bit of this period. 
Um, I was probably uh, in the backseat of a car, you know, sort of squeezed in between two bodyguards. I never thought I would get into a job where I would have to have bodyguards 24-7. But I started advising Uber in the spring of 2014, went in-house to run public policy across uh, 42 markets uh, in EMEA, and then left and, and kept advising the company up until a couple of years ago. I always believed that Uber was the enterprise of a generation, and I think it still is. You know, to be able to flip out your phone and push a button and get a ride, and to be able to disrupt a very corrupt, very anti-consumer industry. Because it was the taxi drivers that were threatening you. That's why you had these bodyguards. It was taxi owners. It was the people who actually owned those cars and owned the licenses in, in various countries and actually exploited not just you know, the passengers, but also exploited, exploited many of the drivers. And there's still so many people out there driving taxis today, trying to make a living, very honest people and, and very respectful. Uh, but at the time that that tweet came out, it was almost insane that no regulator was speaking up and saying, hey, let's give this a chance. And Uber made a ton of mistakes. And we know that. And it's important to learn from those mistakes. And that's part of what I try to help the new startups understand is you have to engage early with government and regulators. You have to engage respectfully. You know, the golden rule is never assume. Don't assume people understand your business model or what are the benefits and what's the rationale to actually change the rules. And at the time, and, and even still, you know, we were lacking in senior political leaders who would stand up and have the guts to say, hey, what's happening? Why is this so insanely controversial and so insanely problematic? And nearly, you know, I have massive respect for Nelly Cruz and that type of politician. And, and, you know, I think I would love to see that sort of politician or that sort of leader in the next European Commission who doesn't, you know, accept to be sort of, you know, scripted by some official or told what to say by a senior civil servant who may decide the, how the commission should be run. Who could you possibly be referring who to? Who could there? I possibly be referring to? I don't know. I, I think you've had some interesting guests in the past few weeks on, on, on EU Confidential, and I'll leave it there. But Uber, you know, is now extraordinarily successful. People are concerned about the IPO price. I don't think it's a problem. I think it's a company that's going to grow and grow and grow. And that's this idea that Uber has had huge growth, but it's still losing money. So some people are saying, like, why on earth would you buy the shares at that price? Basically? It's only 10 years old. I mean, the company is 10 years old, which is insane. Yeah. If you look when at did Amazon break even? It must have been... I think it took a good 12 to 13 years before they mm-hmm. broke even. I'm not, I'm not sure. But, but you know, nobody's worried about Amazon's profitability or Amazon's share price today or, or Google's or Apple's. And I think that if you look at the founders out there who've got really great ideas, who would like to become the next Uber, not because they want to become massively rich, because they really want to have a positive impact on people's lives. I think we need politicians and regulators who at least give the benefit of the doubt. And I think more so look to the smaller players and see how they can be helped to grow. And I think, you know, right now there's a lot of controversy on both sides of the Atlantic about breaking up big tech and, you know, Facebook doing this and Google doing that. I think those companies are at fault for not engaging properly. And and then when, you know, the dirt hits the fan to sort of then throw advertising spend all over Brussels, as we see again and again, it happened with Microsoft, it happened with Google, it's happened with Huawei. But I think the smaller players, in particular the European players, whether they're based in Spain or like Glovo, for example, or Sweden or others, they need to understand that they have to engage with policymakers, but policymakers need to stand up and say, hey, my door is open, I'm here to help you. Mm Try and, and change the rules if it makes sense for society, and let's see how we can work together. And it's that disconnect between the people sitting in Brussels and the people out there in, in the various EU member states who are trying to build businesses. That's one of the disconnects that I think the new European Digital Commissioner and Enterprise Commissioner has to try and repair. And how do the companies show they're doing the sort of serious structural changes that can win back trust? You know, if I look at the case of Uber, I mean, its reputation really tanked 
for a while there. It was seen as the cowboy company. And you mentioned some of these other names and they were obviously going through their own nosedives at different points. But then Uber did have a response. It created things like this public policy advisory board and things like that. From your seat on the inside, you know, how hard was it to kind of make that change? And does it offer any lessons to other companies who are basically going to have to go through something similar if they want to win back trust? You know, Uber's a good example where, you know, certain changes have been made. I I think some of them have been sincere. I think maybe others have yet to be proven or could, you know, do with a little more resource and effort. But I think it shows you out that engineers need to learn how to understand policy. You know, Travis Kalanick, who founded the company and was the problem, he used to refer to himself as the problem solver in chief, didn't really like the idea of having to sit down and discuss with government what the new rules should look like. And that was because he was not a public policy person, he's, mm-hmm. he's not a politician, he's a coder. And he said, I'm a coder, I speak code. And that's fine, but coders are going to have to understand that they have to engage with policymakers if they want their business models to be understood. Yeah. Because understanding is at the basis of having positive rule changes. If you look at the European Court of Justice ruling on Uber, where those judges decided that Uber is a transport company and not a digital platform, I think it's insane that those judges were not able to walk out of their offices, walk out of their courts and push a button, get a ride and understand that Uber is a digital marketplace. A brokering between supply and demand of something that's really essential is getting around your city. So they were working in a void. And I think that's not the fault of the judges. I think that's the fault of regulators that were not progressive enough to understand that you can't sit on your hands and not accept that technology is going to disrupt. Mm -hmm. You have to be part of the conversation. You have to be part of the alliance that tries to bring it to the consumers in a sensible way. If you continue to look at these things in the abstract, then I think we're going nowhere. I used to think that some of this kind of skepticism or disinterest from, for shorthand sake, Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. But I know, I recognize that the tech landscape is bigger than Silicon Valley. But I used to think a lot of those people just thought they were the smartest people in the room. And they kind of look down on government. That government must be full of people who aren't as smart as them. Otherwise, those government officials would be billionaires and living in Silicon Valley too. And I think maybe I changed my view now that I think some of them just didn't understand the implications of what they were doing. And they don't fully absorb that there's a responsibility and price that comes with not understanding those implications. There's still a little bit now of kind of... Um, oh, I just didn't realize it was going to have that effect. Sorry, mea culpa, but let me keep my billions. What's your take on that? How much of it is arrogance versus ignorance versus people still living in their bubble and not realizing exactly the impact that they're having on existing political structures, existing industries, you know, our democracy, basically? I think there's no excuse anymore for ignorance. And there's never been an excuse for arrogance, but I think it's still there to a certain point. You know, those of us who've been around this town for a long, long time remember when Jack Welch was the CEO of General Electric and they were trying to buy, uh, you know, a big European competitor. And, you know, Jack Welch sort of summoned Mario Monti to his jet and had the meeting on the tarmac at the private terminal of Brussels. And, and you know, he was told that, that this is not the way Europe works. You have to come and you have to engage and you have to lay out your stall, whether you're big or small. You know, Mark Zuckerberg, he founded, you know, the Facebook Uh, He's now understood that at the core of his business model is something which is probably more precious to us than anything else that we have, which is our data, Mm -hmm. that there's no more room for ignorance. As for arrogance, you know, you leave it at home. But Facebook still act like they're not a media company. I mean, that kills me where I'm like, come on, you are the biggest news creators and curators in the world. Facebook is a media company. You know, all these companies that rely on advertising, you know, to give services 
quote-unquote, for free to consumers. They are media companies, and they have to take those responsibilities. And that means paying the cost of you know, editors. It means complying with certain rules. It means, otherwise, it means you know, getting massive fines, as, as Magreta Vestaya has shown, that if you break the rules, you know, she's got amazing civil servants within DigiComp who will analyze your behavior, and if you're breaking the rules, you will be fined. In my messages to the founders of new companies, whether in Silicon Valley, but primarily in Berlin and Paris and Amsterdam, and in London, since uh, the UK is still a member of the European Union, is you may think that this is not relevant to you and you're going to hire some super smart public policy woman or, or man to sort of take care of that and sort of manage it at arm's length. Their job is to explain the European institutions and the framework to you. Your job is to explain to the policymakers and the regulators what you're trying to do. But you cannot second, you cannot delegate those meetings or that conversation. You have to be there in person because public policy regulation is at the core of whether or not you're going to succeed. And you must treat it as seriously as you treat fundraising or as seriously as you treat the software development for your next upgrade. I mean, it's basically a big risk if you want to boil it down to more business-specific terms, which maybe is a relevant point to bring in that you do some work for Global Council, which is big on geopolitical risk and yeah. trying to manage that, founded by folks like Peter Mandelson, who was the Deputy Prime Minister in the UK for a mm. while. He was a European Commissioner here in Brussels. What's that work like? Like, do you see that geopolitics and the risk around that is just basically an expanding market at the moment, isn't it? It's certainly an expanding market, and I think it's very important, especially for the mid to, to large size companies out there. It's not just your nose at the coalface trying to you know, influence this directive or that regulation. It's also understanding as an employer, as a business manager, you have to stand, understand what are the risks, the systemic risks or, or the global risk, whether it's terrorism or the cybersecurity that your business face on a daily basis. And of course, your audit committee of your board will want to know that you're actually putting enough energy and bandwidth into calculating those risks. Uh, and every time you have a, a market event, every time you go to the market to an IPO or every time you have a transaction, you publish you know, prospectuses that contain a, a chapter called risk factors. And those, as we saw with the Uber IPO, with the Uber prospectus document, were pretty thick and difficult to get your head around. So you know, the Global Council is one of those companies that brings together people with solid experience of government, of the private sector. It's not about lobbying. It's not about open doors. It's about trying to educate, inform, and raise the level of understanding of business leaders to what they need to take into account. It's not just about managing your budget. It's not just about recruiting smart engineers. It's not just about you know, doing your quarterly earnings call. You, as a business leader, as a CEO, have the responsibility to have a very high level of understanding to where the next and how in what form the next, for example, cyber threat could come from and could, whether you're operating an electricity grid, whether you're operating an information-based system, or whether you're operating you know, a fleet of cars that's driving people around cities. Everything is vulnerable to all sorts of shocks. And reading the newspaper from time to time is not enough. You have to have a higher level of understanding. And fortunately, there's some pretty smart, experienced people out there who are there to help. Speaking of shocks, we had the rise of the Eurosceptics in the European Parliament election a couple of weeks back but obviously not to the extent that they're going to run anything. They didn't do as well as some of the polling suggested. And now we have basically a big mess trying to figure out who's going to run Europe for the next five years, given that everything is so fragmented. Have you got any predictions, I guess, first and foremost, or any suggestions on how Europe can weave its way through this situation? Well, at first, you know, everybody loves the musical chairs every couple of years to figure out, you know, who's going to get which top job. 
The first thing to say is that this notion of a political European Commission was terrible was a terrible initiative because the European Commission is not designed to be political. It's designed to be an executive. It's designed to be the senior civil service. If you look, talk to people who've been in the Commission for two, five, 15 years, the morale within that institution is at rock bottom. So I think we need to bring the Commission back to what it was designed to do, which was to have a sole right of initiative and help the politicians to develop the laws that are fit for the 21st century. That's the first thing. So we need to bring in or well, the member states need to appoint somebody who is a very strong manager and capable of bringing that excellent executive, excellent group of fonctionnaires together and sort of motivate them for the purpose of a united Europe and a progressive Europe. I think the European Parliament also has a massive responsibility. The notion that you can be a member of the European Parliament and also have another job, get revenues from elsewhere, I think is, is just... I was looking at some new figures from Transparency International. I mean, they're all out there, basically, but they've graphed them in a really interesting way. Yeah. And there are six people who earn more than double in outside income compared to their MEP salary. There's at least 20 that earn their salary again from outside income. And some of them have 17 different gigs. Right. It's just like... How can you even turn up in 17 places in a given month? Choose what you want to do in life. Be an investor, be a consultant, be a politician, be a journalist, and stick to that and do it well. And if you're not happy with that, then move to something else. But you can't have your cake and eat it. So the rise of the extremes, I think, is predictable when you have that sort of behavior. And you also have members of the European Parliament who tirelessly go through texts and really try to improve the laws before they hit the council table. So I think everybody who's got actually a voice in deciding who's going to be the woman who should lead the next European Commission, or who are the people who should, you know, run the groups in the Parliament and structure the Parliament accordingly. And also, Council has its own responsibilities, and that comes down to sort of, you know, comatology, which I think will probably make all of your listeners switch off. I think everybody, we all have... <laughs> We've got very committed listeners. They're we all have much more uh, responsibility in this. And I think that, you know, civil society, whether it's the NGOs, whether it's industry, lobbyists and lobbying is a very noble a necessary thing, despite what some of the populists may say, because it's part of the democratic process. Everybody has a responsibility to do things better. So a commission that is focused on what the commission was designed to do, governments will do the politics, the European Parliament will do the politics, and let's you know start afresh in the autumn of this year with institutions that are structured and populated and sort of with the managers that they need uh, to do the jobs that they were designed to do. Some very strong life advice there from Mark McGann. It's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for listening. You were listening to Mark McGann of Moonshot Ventures. Next up, the podcast panel. And now it's time to welcome back the podcast panel, but I'll welcome myself back to Brussels after three weeks away. Hello, Lena Rebarus. Welcome back, Ryan. Good morning. Hi, Alva Finn. Hi, you look so refreshed. I was and New tanned. York pride. You, look at that. I've got a jellyfish sting. You should oh, be looking at that. that. That's three weeks in, and we can still see it looks my really very good. masculine tough scars. The price of vacation, yeah. Well, you Ryan. can't, but these ladies like can. Like Crocodile Dundee. That, that is me. Exactly. <laughs> Why wasn't I given an EU top job? That's my real question. You were away. Yeah. yeah. Out of sight, that was out my of big heart. Mistake. Oh. Yeah. yeah, constantly yeah. texting. Oh. That was the way to get a Belgian citizenship. I should have oh. just nominated myself for an EU top <laughs> What about me? <laughs> <laughs>
So, as it stands, Ursula von der Leyen, who is a polyglot native of Brussels, she is a qualified medical doctor, she raised seven children, she became the defense minister of Germany, and she is now en route to becoming European Commission president. That was a bit of a surprise. Oh, a complete 180. And then all the people who were in previously in the old deal are gone. Yep. Under the carpet. No spits in Canada. Yeah, gone. That'll teach Manfred Weber to miss my debate. <laughs> Lena? Great, we have a woman. I mean, Europe made it. And on top of that, she's from uh, Germany. I so mean. you think she really will get the votes in Parliament? There won't be some mess because of the Spitzen candidate system being ditched? Definitely, but still the nomination and uh, the countries put together a woman forward, I think this is a very good thing for the whole world, really. Everyone expected Hillary Clinton to be the first US female president, and now Europe uh, just... I hope she, she gets the votes. From a, a gender perspective, I'm talking here. Well, maybe we have come a long way, because both von der Leyen and Christine Lagarde have been stuck in a couple of ethical scandals. And so instead of a woman being sent in to fix the crisis, which is usually the way you get the first woman X or first mm -hmm. woman Y, now, despite of all of these scandals, they're being put forward. Um, mm. Those being some plagiarism scandals, some lawsuit scandals, some other mismanagement of contract scandals. We don't need to go into the details. But many male politicians as well, they've done the same and they continued their career. Oh, Charles Michel, he just yeah. lost an election and look at him. He's yeah. going to be European Council That's president. That's the most unbelievable so. part of this whole thing, <laughs> that he managed to interject himself into this after such a big political failure. I really think that being in the room must have a huge advantage. But they must be like, no, OK, well, Timmerman's gone, Weber gone. What about me? Just the whole time. <laughs> have you thought about where I should be? But what happened to Mark Rutte? I don't think obviously he ever not, wanted not the very, job. Not very present in the room then. Yeah, well, there, there you go. Because obviously, if, if you want something hard enough and you're there, you're going to get it, even though you totally bomb in the last well, well, election. He, he really did want something because the Dutch diplomats got very angry at me when I suggested, because he wasn't a G20 member, that that was going to be a problem when they were trying to do that Osaka compromise because mm -hmm. he was supposed to advocate for Franz Timmermans. Mm -hmm. He was a liberal party negotiator and a lot of people wanted him in one of the top jobs. And I was a bit like, well, if you are not at the table, you are on the menu. And they got furious. Though. He's going to be in Osaka. The Netherlands are they're observers of the G20. Don't you say Mark Rutte is not involved in these discussions and didn't get him anywhere, did it? Mm -mm. Well, yeah, maybe you're, you're right. He didn't want it. But at least he's the youngest from the four... And you're getting a Catalan, Lena. You should be happy. Josep Borrell, 72, age is no barrier. Being a Spanish unionist is no barrier to becoming an EU success. Not at all, because he speaks French, apparently, uh, to President Macron, like the four nominees. They, they all speak French. French. I that thought that on the way in this morning. Yeah, yeah I, Mark, I no? noted that as well, that they all spoke French and English. But so. only one of them went to Boris Johnson's school. Did he? Really? No, 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 no. Ursula von der Leyen. Ah. The European school in Brussels. Ah, sorry, I thought you meant someone went to Eton. Like, as a, <laughs> yeah, me too. As I a, was like, what? As a shipped off, like, I don't know, Spanish young thing. But okay, right. Okay, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, everybody was saying Madame Mogherini was very young for the position, to be tete-a-tete -tete with the, all the world leaders and lead the diplomacy of the EU. And now we have someone of 72 years old, extremely vocal about certain uh, topics? Oh, he is not a fan of either the United States nor the Trump administration, is he? Not at all. He has as well spoke very openly about Iran, about Israel, about that we need to deal with the situation in a very 
not having any sort of uh, sensibility to the region. But do we think this is all going to go through the parliament? In the end, probably, yes, I would say. But we've got four nominees for parliament president. We're recording this before that vote takes place in Strasbourg on Wednesday evening. Very interesting. Not a lot of big names in that lineup, is there? I mean, two Spitzen candidates, I should say. So Scar Keller from the Greens and Jan Zaradil from the Conservatives and Reformists. So maybe there will be a Spitzen candidate that gets something in the end. I think it's probably going to be Sazzoli, right? He's the Social Democrat from Italy. Italy. Yeah. Yeah. So we will have the leadership all from the usual big European countries. I don't think there will be any sort of geographical balance that everyone is talking about. Well, that'll uh, teach uh, the Bulgarian Prime Minister to abandon Kristalina Gorgieva for the second time in 18 months. I mean, he couldn't get behind her for UN SecGen. Mm -hmm. He apparently couldn't get behind her for any of the many posts that she was being considered for this time around. It's must yep. be tough being the bridesmaid all the time. No, but I was with out for dinner when we got the news yesterday with some people and one of them was Eastern European and she said, look at that lineup and I feel left out. Hmm. Their interests aren't being represented at the top. So I think... But would Gorgieva really represent Bulgaria? Oh, no, I'm interests, not saying or, her, but no. the fact that it's just a total Western, Northern Europe kind of stitch up. I mean, I definitely would look at that and think, why can't you know, some of our leaders be there at the table, given that we see deep, deep divides between East and West. But when the leaders of so many of those countries basically don't play by the European rule book or won't nominate people from their country who do, I mean, it's not a surprise in the end. Mm. I'm very much hoping that it will pass in the parliament without any... uh, Delays. It's been like 50 mm-hmm. hours in these negotiations. Everyone was looking at Europe from abroad saying, ah, they are not in agreement. It's were they like- really? I mean, I was in the States when that happened, mm-hmm. and I know that there were concerns within Europe that yeah. that was how things were being perceived. Mm-hmm. But I don't think Europe was being perceived at all in the United States while this was happening. It was like a complete non-existent process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do they need, do, do they care in the U.S. about Europe? I mean... They might care about the outcome, but they definitely did not care about, about that process. process. Yeah. But speaking of difficult processes, is that even the plural? I don't know, I'm jet-lagged. But uh, Angela Merkel has been caught on video shaking again. I'm less worried about doing some kind of podcast diagnosis of whatever she might have been going through. But having sat through endless G20 negotiations, endless EU 28 negotiations, and this being the second time in two weeks that she has looked visibly unwell, I guess the question I want to ask is... Do people have a right to know about their leader's health issues? This has come up with Jean-Claude Juncker before. Is she being treated fairly as a woman compared to male politicians in this situation? And we've got the live comparison of Jeremy Corbyn being accused of being too frail to be the UK Labour leader. So I wanted to float the politics around all of that and see if you had any reactions. If she said publicly that I have nothing to declare about my health, I believe that she has enough of a self-integrity as a politician. And she has always demonstrated that to share if there's anything or any problem with her. I mean, she wouldn't hide it. I don't think so. Yeah, I think this kind of armchair diagnosis is unethical. There are so many reasons why that could be happening, but it might not be those things, you know. And I think that... To me, your health is in the realm of a private sphere. Mm -hmm. And if you don't want to say publicly what's happening, then you shouldn't have to. And And she has been consistent in that. So no one even knows who her doctor is. So it's not like she has gone down the US system and had publicly available medical results in the way they do in the US presidential process. 
So she's at least been consistent in her approach there. But it's true, Germans don't really know anything about their leader's health. Yeah, and I just think as well that if we go down this road that everybody has to say what they have, doesn't it kind of stop people who do have long-standing chronic illnesses from going into power? And should that be the case? Or is that, that's from a human or rights standpoint, that we, is discrimination learn, on the grounds of health status. But that assumes people would discriminate. But until you perhaps have a public discussion mm. and have people accept that, lots of people have mental health issues or that some people have manageable chronic conditions. If we're going into an era where most of the population has some kind of long-term condition as we live into our Mm. 90s and whatever, Mm. if you don't have a way to talk about this in certain public spheres, Mm. then maybe you kind of prevent the general progress of the citizenry. But it should be up to you if you want to disclose your health status. That's like, a fair point. I think definitely we should be making people comfortable enough to talk about things that they want to talk about. But I mean, you could equate it to in the 70s being a gay politician. I would never have said, oh, you should just come out and tell everybody because then we would never have gotten into positions of power, you know. So it's up to you what you want to disclose about your private life and your personal life. And I think that your health is very much in the personal sphere. She's still doing her job. And um, it's a tough job. It's a super tough job. And she's gotten a bit of a beating of the last, you know, her compromises were not accepted. Well, there we are. I mean, let's Shaking maybe, with anger, maybe. Let's maybe shift to that because she really did not get no. what she wanted. And, mm. I mean, it's a tricky one to discuss, but the common understanding in Brussels, let's say, and I can't prove it, I can't verify this, but the common understanding is that she abstained on the vote for von der Leyen. Yes. So we'll know in coming days whether that is able to be proven or if that is admitted from the German side, but... It seemed like it was a very tough negotiation and perhaps Emmanuel Macron was the one who got most of what he wanted. I just don't understand why she would do that. Lena, do you have any inside word? They got the majority and she didn't want to do it. She didn't do it. Whether it's a German from her own country, still... um, That could be the reason that she didn't want to have her fingerprints on installing a German at the top. But for the one person who has been a minister with her since day one in Germany... It's not a great show of solidarity, is it? That's, I mean, I think in these negotiations, or at least what I hear through the grapevine, is it's your country first and then your party second. And to do that with your someone who's in your government to abstain from a vote, it just looks terrible. I don't know. I just, I would really question the reasons for doing that when you really should be putting a German face forward. Maybe she's not the most suitable candidate for Germany. Maybe she had another more suitable person mm. to take well, this, this job. This is the reporting uh, on, from our, our reporter Matthew Konichnik. He's our chief Europe correspondent and he's based in Berlin. And he put out a story Tuesday night about the uncomfortable truth around Ursula von der Leyen, which is that she's widely perceived to have been a failure in her role at the Defence Ministry. However, I would say that It is heavily speculated that one of the reasons she was put there was so that she wouldn't look great compared to Angela Merkel. That was a way of sidelining a potential rival is definitely one interpretation of her role there at um, the German armed forces. But if you're having to go into a negotiation with Donald Trump and you're the person who failed to achieve big upticks in defense investment, if you've got armed forces where the planes don't work, where the the submarines and the ships are in dry dock, it's not exactly the record you want to campaign on, is it? Mm, yeah, but isn't it seen as a kind of like poison chalice, no? Yes. I mean, defence ministries are literally seen as a graveyard for a lot of politicians. Mm. They're put there to fail. And now we will not have the Secretary General, Mr. Selmayr. I mean, apparently he cannot stay as the Secretary General. If well, we we've broken the... several taboos this week already. Yeah. I'm not sure we're 
not going to break another one. I, I will, when we see the back of Mr. Selmire, I will believe that we have seen the back of Mr. Selmire. Apparently, I won't it, presume it. it pop yeah. up in London. Yeah. <laughs> like <No>. a mushroom. <laughs> that is a reference to the suggestion that Man Selmire will become Britain's worst nightmare and become yeah. the EU ambassador to the UK post-Brexit. I don't think it's a nightmare. I think it's a dream. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all we've got time Stare for on this episode of EU Confidential. <laughs> Thank you, Lena. Thank you, Alva. Thanks. Thanks, Brian. If you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, you can do that at politico.eu forward slash registration or wherever you found the podcast. That way you'll get it each week without having to think twice. Thanks as always to Weidong Lin, Andrew Gray and Isabella Borshoff. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.